the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Wednesday, November 24th, 2021, 602 The breaking news, in case you haven't heard it, is that the three defendants in the uh, Ahmed Arbery uh, murder case out of Georgia have been found guilty. We can talk more about that in a little bit. I wanted to start off on the Thanksgiving theme that we are hopefully all in the mood for. I was thinking about uh, a couple things I wanted to say to you today about this Thanksgiving, and I was rereading a little bit about gratitude here and there. William Buckley, who wrote a book on it, spoke about the relation of the citizen to the community organized to protect his rights and the gratitude such a citizen owes to such a community. I, about a year and a few months ago, gave a monologue at uh, at a time when a lot of people were down on this country. The riots were, of course, uh, storming the nation and our cities throughout America. And it was quite popular to speak of not only America as a systemically racist country, but America as a down market country. Patriotism was at a very low ebb. And I, get, I delivered a monologue on that, that many people uh, said I should do it again. And again and again, one of them said I should do it on Thanksgiving. As I got more requests for it, I replied to people saying, well, maybe maybe, on, maybe next Thanksgiving. And they all seem to like that. So herewith, there's a lot of self-flagellation going on right now, a lot of prostration, a lot of apology, a lot of bending, a lot of kneeling over America. Count me as one who will not yield and who will not kneel. I will not kneel in front of or because of America, or in front of or because of my fellow Americans, especially before those who do not understand America. I will not kneel and I will not apologize for being an American. I love it. I wish more did. I will not kneel because America is a less than perfect country because I do not choose myself with the freedom of movement to live in a racist country. I have the full freedom of not only speech and religion, but travel. And with that last one, the freedom to travel, I do not choose to live as I choose to live here in a country that is systemically racist. I would never choose to live in a racist country. I do note other countries, unlike this one, do not have immigration problems. Many of them have emigration problems. America, surprise, surprise, does not have an emigration problem. Oh, sure, a lot of people have threatened to leave this country because they don't like the political wisdom or choices of their fellow Americans. The funny thing is they never do. I take that to mean they do not have the courage of their convictions. I look around the world and I ask the question Daniel Patrick Moynihan once asked. He said, is America an imperfect place? You bet. Find me a better one. And I think that's the point many miss. Michael Novak put it this way. To know oneself is to disbelieve utopia. What did he mean and what was he getting at? 
sure, of course, many of us would like to live in a perfect place, but we know places are steered by, governed by fellow human beings. And fellow human beings are fallible, imperfect. And if we're being honest with ourselves, no matter how good we are, no matter how strong our self-esteem, we know we individually are also imperfect. Now translate those imperfections across the universe of people, and you know quite quickly utopia is impossible. So the mature way to look at things is the way Moynihan did. I'm not embarrassed to live in or speak up on behalf of a less than perfect country. Nor am I embarrassed to live in or speak up on behalf of or honor a less than perfect country that is the best there is and that millions of Americans before me have given their lives to defend. I will not kneel on behalf of such a place or apologize for it. My grandfather moved here from Russia at the turn of the 19th century. He fled Russia because he knew what tyranny and anti-Semitism were. He knew what he faced from Cossacks and Tsarist militants and decided to move to the place that said all men are created equal. He braved the uprooting of his life, moved here and fought on behalf of this country by going back to Europe, but in an American uniform in World War I. My dad, his son, was born here. He faced what he called a lot of anti-Semitism and Yet he lied about his age so that he too could wear the uniform of this country and go abroad to fight for it and humanity, as he did in World War II. Did he face anti-Semitism in the Army Air Corps? You bet. Did he blame America or the majority of Americans for it? Not one second. He gave or would give the name the same answer Joe Lewis would give when he was asked how he could fight for the United States in World War II when his country back home was discriminatory to him. You know what Lewis said? He said, quote, with all the problems the United States has, I know Hitler won't make any of them better. There ain't nothing wrong with America that Hitler can fix, close quote. My dad fought in the Pacific Theater. He could have said the same about Hirohito. These were young and yet mature men that knew if the country was racist or bigoted or anti-Semitic or anything else, they would not be able to thrive in it. They knew that pockets of racism or bigotry were aberrations, not the crux and DNA of this country. They would not kneel or take a knee or apologize for America. They fought for it. And I will not kneel or take a knee or apologize for America either, even though, yes, I too have experienced aberrational bigotry. As a young boy in an elite school, a bigger guy older than me would call me the name that is the equivalent of the N-word for Jews. Did I think the whole school was bigoted? I did not. Did I think he was a problem? Maybe. I think more that he was problemed. I wasn't a particularly religious person in my youth, but I've come to understand the difference between the main theme and story and the asterisk and aberration, and never to confuse the two. Do you know the story of Ruby Bridges? We've spoken of her here before. It's a pregnant one, full of so much meaning. She's the little... African-American girl Norman Rockwell painted, being escorted to her desegregated school in Louisiana. She was being escorted by federal marshals. The federal marshals were sent in by Dwight Eisenhower. So don't tell me a president can't send in federal troops to enforce laws, as we were told all kinds of times last year. Don't tell me a president needs the request or permission of the governor to send in federal troops to enforce the law, as we were told 
a lot last year. I can guarantee you the segregationist governor of Louisiana did not ask President Eisenhower to send in federal troops to oppose his segregationist and anti-integrationist views and policies. Anyway, Ruby Bridges, six years old, dressed for school, and every day was pelted and shouted at as the armed U.S. Marshals escorted her to school. She said every day as she walked to school and back home that she said a prayer. And the prayer was, please, God, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing, close quote. Did she hate this country? Did she think her country was racist? She did not. She thought some lousy aberrants and exceptions were doing things to her because they did not know what they were doing. Six years old. I wish more of us were as sophisticated as she was right now. Did I get refused jobs because of my background? I know I did. Did I think my country was bigoted as a result? I did not. Do I kind of weep and die a little bit every time I see Louis Farrakhan or his Nation of Islam venerated in memorials, speeches, marches, or moments supposedly dedicated to civil rights? He who calls Jews vermins and worse? You bet I do. Do I think my country bigoted and racist and refuse to stand up to honor it because of that? I do not. I know they know not what they are doing or saying, and they are the problem, not this country, and not the vast majority of my fellow countrymen. Do I lament too many African Americans harbor such bigotry in their community? Sure. Does it make me think ill of African Americans in general? Of course not. Did I learn about Martin Luther King Jr. at a young age? I did. Did it inform me so much? That when his holiday was rescinded in our state, I led a protest in my senior year in high school that led the principal to threaten me with not graduating? You bet. Did he say bigoted things to me? Not about my skin color, but my religion? Yes, he did. Was it worth it? Yes, it was. Did I think my school racist or bigoted because that principal said nasty and bigoted things to me? No, I didn't. I knew he knew not what he was speaking of and that he was the aberrant one, not I. This is why I will never take a knee for or kneel on behalf of this country. Did I understand what Bobby Kennedy meant when he told a large gathering of black people not to hate white people because a white man killed Martin Luther King? You bet I understood it because Bobby Kennedy pointed out that a white man also killed his brother. And it wasn't because of the perpetrator's skin color. It was because of the hate or animus in his mind, ideology and soul. Did I understand not to hate all people of Arab descent because an Arab nationalist committing the first act of Arab terrorism on our soil killed Bobby Kennedy for those reasons? You bet I did. I learned to hate terrorism. I never learned to hate any kind of people because of their nationality or country of origin. And neither did this country. You know why? Because we humans were given a gift a gift of discernment, to know how to distinguish between good and bad, right and wrong, evil and decent, violent and peaceful. We know how to distinguish between Hitler and Churchill. We know how to distinguish between, I don't know, Thomas Sowell and Louis Farrakhan. We know how to distinguish between America and China, or we used to. I still do. That's why I will not yield, apologize, or prostrate myself. I will celebrate and always stand for a country whose founders said things like, quote, 
I believe in the equality of man, and I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. Close quote. Thomas Paine. I will celebrate and always stand for a country whose founders said things like, quote, slavery is such an atrocious, atrocious debasement of human nature that its very extirpation, if not performed with solicitous care, may sometimes open a source of serious evils, close quote. Benjamin Franklin. I will celebrate and always stand for a country whose founders said things like, quote, there can be no truer principle than this, that every individual of the community at large has an equal right to the protection of government, close quote. Alexander Hamilton. I will celebrate and always stand for a country whose founders said things like, quote, all possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as it was by the indulgence of one class of people, that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Close quote. George Washington. I will always stand for, I will never kneel in front of or on the soil of a country that uniquely went to war against itself shedding the lives of hundreds of thousands of our own countrymen to end slavery. I will always stand for and I will never kneel in front of or on the soil of a country whose battle hymn carries the lyrics, as he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free, which is what those hundreds of thousands who extirpated slavery here sang as they marched to war and won it. I will always stand for and I will never kneel in front of or on the soil of a country that liberated the rest of the world from true and mass bigotry and racism that would burn out all the moral lights. I will always stand for and I will never kneel in front of or on the soil or apologize for a less than perfect country. I myself know I am imperfect. I myself know there is no greater, more non-racist, more non-bigoted, more enlightened country in the world, a country that has given refuge, relief, and rights to more people than any other in history. In short, I will not be forced to hate this place or my fellow countrymen. I will love it and them. And those who know not what they do, I'll pray for them. And if they let their minds move their arms in antithetical directions to violence, I will work to see the law applies to them. That's America to me. Martin Luther King Jr. called this country and her founding beautiful and magnificent. I do too. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Can I do an experiment with y'all in real time? And, and I think it's actually a good one because I'm assuming this audience is either greatly or at least a little more, <laughs> either a lot more or a little more attuned to politics than the average American. I'm just assuming as much. I think I'm probably right in that. So here's the, here's, here's the test that I'd like to engage. Here's the survey I'd like to engage in with you, the experiment. As you um, have your Thanksgiving celebrations and meals tomorrow, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to presume most of you will not plan on bringing up politics if there are people at the table you haven't seen in a while or may not know. 
if there are people at the table you do know who don't agree with you. I'm going to assume you aren't going to bring up politics, most of you, just a presumption, because Thanksgiving's about something else. Although it can have political implications, and the left has made it political by trying to make us feel guilty about it, I'll get into that in a few moments as well. Here's the test. Call me back after the holiday and let me know who brought up politics first at your table, a conservative or a liberal or a leftist. Let me, I'm just curious, I, even if it's not you. Obviously, there will be other people around the table. Likely, there will be other people around the table, more than two. Let me know who brings up politics first, the liberal or the conservative, the leftist or the conservative. I would love to have that, that feedback. And the reason is obviously a long-standing thesis of mine that I got from Professor Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania. I need not repeat it here, but in sum and substance, it's that in any given room of unknowns, the liberal will be the first to bring up politics. Let me, let me know if that happens. I can give you her reasons why later if you want to get more into it, but I, I would just love to know. I would love to know. It is an unfortunate thing how politics has so infiltrated every single institution. I remember when I was a kid, Thanksgivings of yore, I, I was a pretty p- political kid, actually, uh, on, on, on the other side of the, um, of the equation. I was a lefty, but I was very political, particularly because I was a lefty. But that having been said, I don't remember political discussions at Thanksgiving growing up. I don't know if you do, Bill. Ask Rusty if he does. I, I don't remember. I remember a lot about the Dallas Cowboys. I remember that was always a big deal around Thanksgiving. And there was a lot of football talk. I really don't remember much politics. Just as I don't recall any politics at sporting events, just as I recall less politics at religious services and other civic engagements, We have come to um, treat politics as all-consuming, not, as C.S. Lewis said, something that should be thought of as medicine, to be discussed and fascinated with when we're hungry or sick or ailing. He said it is a sick society that treats politics like an everyday affair, just as it would be a sick person who's continually discussing his medicines. That is actually, isn't it, the task of political science? We are all political scientists. Anyone who engages in civic affairs is a political scientist of some kind or another, if not a professor of it, a practitioner of it, right? You're engaged in it. You live in the polis. You live in the city. You live in the society. You tend to vote or at least pay your taxes and engage in the society one way or another, with certain political opinions that you try and encourage or discourage, right? But the political scientist, that is to say all of us, is about the the body politic, just as the medical scientist should be about the individual human body and both of their well-beings, the human body's well-being, the body politic's well-being. Thus, it is a sick society that is consumed, overly consumed, by issues of politics and medicine. And I submit, we are not a sick society from a virus that was unleashed out of China or Wuhan. We are a sick society because of viruses that have been allowed to leak from our ivory towers and suffuse so much of America that we can seem to find no relief 
from the sickness because it's a crisis industrial complex they have built and we go from crisis to crisis. It ain't healthy. But let me know what happens at your table. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our culture and economy update from one of the happiest and smartest men I am privileged to know, John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Grand Canyon Planning Dot com is his website. His radio show is heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. Hey, J.D., how are you? Fantastic, of course. Does Thank anyone so else much. call you J.D. or am I the Everybody only? Everybody calls me. Is that's that what, right? That's, I, I always, everything I do is under J.D. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Oh, I thought, so okay, so I got to come board. up with something unique. No, I love it. That's great. Uh, I'll call you, you Max. Max. Yeah. I'll answer to that, too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have a couple stories I wanted to run by you, and hopefully you can help me explain. This one's sure. a head-scratcher a little bit. Weekly jobless claims post stunning decline right. to 199,000, okay. the lowest level since before – well, yeah, just lowest level since 1969. Right. Okay. I, I don't quite understand. I'm not following this. Well, what's, this is really interesting because we all know we see all of these signs out there for – Looking for people. We'll pay twenty thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, yes. we're looking for people uh, to work, yeah. and uh, but for some reason, initial jobless claims are down. Now, this could be for, uh, for a number of reasons. Maybe some of these people did go back to work. Uh, maybe some of them have used up all of their unemployment benefits, right? And yep. they've just decided we're not going back to work now. Uh, we ha- we hear about this great resignation. Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly happening. I meet a lot of people, Seth, and a lot of people listen to your show. And uh, when we talk, they're they're at a point, many people, that they just don't want to go back to work. Companies mm-hmm. may be giving them some forms of mandates or they don't like the politics that's mm-hmm. happening within their company. They got used to working at home. We got like used that. to working yeah. at home and, yeah. and uh, you know, things are changing, changing again. So there are uh, any variety of reasons why. But what is interesting, this is a great thing that 199,000 filed for claims this past week. That's what that means. But let's. Also look at the number of people who are actually collecting the benefit. Over 2.43 million people are collecting unemployment benefits. So sometimes we hear only 199,000 people are claiming for benefits this week. Well, that's the new people claiming, but there are 2.43 million people that are collecting also. So there's still a high number of people that are out of work and are receiving unemployment benefits. And the interesting thing is those 2.43 million people, if they want a job, Seth, my point is they can get a job. Yeah. There are companies out there that are looking for workers. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier in the week. I went into a supermarket this past week, and I just went to go buy some donuts for the office. And I went to the back of the store where the bakery was. There was not a donut in sight. And I went to the bakery and I said, oh, I said, did you not get a chance to put the donuts out yet? They said, well, no, we didn't make them today because we don't have the employees to make them. So it's not a supply issue as far as the materials. It is a a person is the supply. It's a personal personnel issue. Personnel issue. That's the supply problem we have right now. But yet there are 2.43 million people collecting unemployment. We need to get those people off unemployment, get them into the workforce, and some of these small business owners, they're the ones that are really suffering right now, Seth. Those are the ones that have to close 
maybe their doors a day or two a week or reduce their hours because they cannot get people to work. And it, I encourage people out there, if you go to a restaurant and you have to wait a little longer than you normally do, please be patient. It's not the server's fault. It is just that there's most likely a shortage of people. Uh, and the companies are trying to stay open and give you a good product and food and so forth. Uh, but it might take a little longer than it has in the past, unfortunately. Yeah, I wonder if if we're going to seek uh, sink to a new normal where that, where that level of service is going to be uh, the new default, the new expectation we're going to have to get used to. I God, certainly I hope obviously not. hope not, but oh, I do I understand it's a problem for small businesses, particularly restaurants, yeah. who have customers who are expecting the service that they received a year ago or yeah. a year and a half ago. I really don't – I don't think that that is going to be long-term. Okay. Eventually, they will find their employees again. People will come back uh, to work at these restaurants as, as I think a lot of these benefits fall off. Uh, but uh, you're just going to have to be patient out there. I know I'm patient. I'm, people apologize. I'm going, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. You know, uh, If I'm in a rush, then I'll, I'll do something else. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you, and I think especially this time of year, a little extra grace is helpful oh my gosh, and sure. useful and appreciated. And when we come back um, from the holiday, maybe we can talk about the other side of this, what we're going to see on Black Friday, where I do think it's not so much personnel, but more of the supply chain problem, right? Yeah, more at the retail be. level. Right. right. Hey, Seth, I wish you, you a very uh, happy Thanksgiving. And to all of your listeners out there, um, you know, I know they all appreciate you as much as I do. Well, <laughs> we're going to engage in mutual corruption. All but right. I'm very grateful as this community is to you and your work and uh, Tracy, of course, and your whole family at your whole family at Grand Canyon Planning. John, thank, thank you. you. Have a thank wonderful you. Thanksgiving. Thank you. Securities and advisory services offered through Client One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and Tipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Be good, man. Thank you. You too. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If it's Wednesday, we check in with uh, Robert H. Jackson, visiting fellow in constitutional studies. That is the great Brett Johnson, partner over at the law firm of Snell and Wilmer. Brett, how are you? I hope you and Heather and the family are all getting ready for a great Thanksgiving. Yes, good good to be here, Seth, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and everybody who's listening. Thank you. You too. You as well. Uh, Brett, one of the things we touched on last time you were with us last week, and I wanted to circle back with you on, was uh, the issue of uh, the concerned parents. Certainly it would have applied in Virginia, but in, right now in Scottsdale and in other school boards, um, that are feeling that they are being harassed by officials, whether the harassment comes from a threatening letter of the attorney general or whether it comes from school board officials holding dossiers on these parents or found to be holding, allegedly found to be holding these dossiers. Do parents have recourse to anything? Uh, do they have constitutional rights here? Do they have the right to expect that their personal information will not be doxed because of their political opinions. Does that world of questioning make sense to you? It, it, it does, and, and obviously the simple answer is, is, is yes. Um, anybody who is participating in their civic right ability to be able to, to um, provide testimony or comment at a public hearing, um, you know, that, that right is protected, and they, they can't be um, uh, you know, abused or any, any way stifled from that. Now, obviously, there's the checks and balances that are that are associated with that, and the one that is most notable is obviously the First Amendment. And 
we, we all cherish the First Amendment. People get to say what they want to say. Obviously, they can't breach the peace in saying it or, or make threatening comments, but they're able to express their views and not worry about retaliation for their, for their comments. Um, so in, in the context of uh, at least the Scottsdale Unified School District, um, where one of the, the school board members at the time was the president of the Scottsdale Unified School Board member for, for purposes of uh, any of your listeners who haven't heard the story, um, was keeping a private uh, file basically on uh, certain parents, opposition people, um, and even students um, associated with um, different COVID-19 vaccine mandates that the school board was, was considering. So a- as part of that, you know, you also have to understand that 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 elected official is also has First Amendment rights. And that's the, the kind of a give and take that our founders were struggling with back and forth. And, it, and so you always have to put that into context, too, that an individual who just because they decide to run for elected office, they don't lose their First Amendment mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. But for sure, as a public official, you can't abuse your office. So to the extent that you're trying to use your office to stifle somebody else's First Amendment rights, obviously not allowed. Or in the case of students, the information is private and you cannot use governmental resources by any means to uh, to take any action against the parents. Uh, somewhere in the back of my mind, Brett Johnson, are rattling words like Bivens and 42-1983. Is that what we're talking about here? Are these are these the kinds of things parents would redound to if their rights were violated, a Section 1983 claim or a Bivens thing? If is, is, Am I anywhere close to the right world no, of law? No, you are, here? right? Okay. So, so let me let me uh, let you I can know. hear you laughing a little. I can no, hear no, no, you. No, I can hear in your throat that thing you do whenever I try to speak a little law to you. <laughs> you're, you, you do a good job. Of it. A, a 1983 claim is when a government official violates some other statute. Okay. 1983 is basically the vehicle that allows you to to get that into court. Okay. So in this context, there's two. Obviously, the First Amendment. Yep. And then, um, and what government officials, state all the way to the federal, have an obligation to protect people's constitutional rights and not suppress those rights. Mm-hmm. So, as what our attorney general said to the attorney general of the United States, is that there's a violation in, in his mind of 18 U.S.C. 242, which might be complicated, but basically prohibits um, a government official from depriving a person of a right or privilege protected by the Constitution. Okay. In addition, you have statutory. Now, we always talk about the Constitution being on top, can't violate that, but then we have statutes underneath that. And from the Attorney General's perspective, it's called the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Mm-hmm. So if anybody across the nation who is having issues with their school board and they believe that their student, the children, are being impacted by the parent trying to protect their rights, whether they're right or wrong on their protect on the right they're trying to assert, mm-hmm. but they're trying to protect um, a right that they feel is clear, the the school is not able to basically take that out on the student and use information from that student's record in an inappropriate manner, and that's what FERPA is all about. Now, uh, of course, you can't just claim that you have had your First Amendment or other privacy rights violated. There has Correct. to be an actual tangible harm done right i mean there has to be there has to be enough evidence to go forward on this and we're still and i gather we're still at that stage yet i don't i don't know i don't know that we've that we've gotten to the bottom of this story quite yet which is a bit frustrating by the way you would think you would think there would be a lot more publicity on this it seems to have died after about a week 
Yeah, the wheels of justice, uh, you know, sometimes turn slowly. And yeah. There, are, there are, are several investigations, and to the extent that um, uh, just by having your child's information released inappropriately in a file or anything along those lines, that there, there's there's a right of action immediately upon that. So, you know, I, I think this one's going to have to play itself out, at least in Scottsdale. But I do understand, you know, across the country, this has been a, a topic of concern about not just school board districts, but other agencies, especially when it comes to COVID-19 and enforcing basically mandates or different policies and procedures. What are the rights of those who are being impacted by that to be able to step up? And the, the, the reality is that you definitely have a right to at least vocalize your your uh, discomfort and, uh, and argument against um, being covered by any of those mandates. And of course, too, it's important to note um, isn't it that there are some states, and I gather in federal law as well, there are going to be some some barriers. There are going to be barriers about suing federal officials or state and local officials, aren't there? There are some protections they have back to that tension. You described. True. Yeah. Um, it's always, it's never really, a, there are some um, what we call absolute immunities. Mm-hmm. But in regard to constitutional protections, where every official, again, has the obligation of uh, of enforcing the Constitution, there's only qualified immunity. Okay. And so if a government official does violate a constitutional right or even a statutory right, um, then that immunity is qualified. But if a, if a um, board member is doing their job and um, they, they pass a mandate, they decide based off of POW policy that the vaccine mandate is going to apply to a school district, for example, they would not be able to be sued on that mm-hmm. because they are qualified. They, they have immunity from making that political decision. The right for the people is if they don't like what a government official has done and elected leader has done um, is to is to vote them out. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, the right in a democracy and exercise their First Amendment on the way to that election. Yeah, absolutely. Without without fear of reprisal by that government official, without fear of, rep- of reprisal. Right. And as with the attorney general or surveillance, right. uh, if right. you're using government resources to surveil uh, different or even children, for that matter because you have opposition to a policy statement by those individuals, um, that that would be clearly um, of concern. You're a great uh, plaintiff's attorney. You're a great defendant's or defense attorney as well, Brett Johnson. Do you, I I mean, my, my, my question to you is this. We're seeing more and more of these stories. It's interesting. We're seeing more and more of them in Arizona. This must be true in all kinds of states across the country going on right now. And more and more, I'm guessing, will be discovered. It's going to take one of these successful suits to, I think, put an end to to this sort of thing, don't you think? I mean, someone is going to have to step up, launch this lawsuit, win it, and that will have, hopefully, the kind of effect that re-instructs government officials as to what their circumscribed duties are and what they can do to retaliate against political opponents, don't you think? I do, but just also, I mean, I definitely believe that, that each individual has a, um, an obligation to, to review whether or not they've been harmed yep. and try to bring some action to it. Yep. But I think that there's other governmental agencies, such Good. as the attorney generals, county attorneys, yeah. et cetera, Good. that uh, need to definitely step up, not just for when the collective is being violated, but when individual rights are being violated. So. I know we have some good folks here in Arizona yep. who are definitely looking at that. Good. Yeah, we can pick up on that theme, too, the duties of the Fed, of other government officials to enforce civil and constitutional rights. Brett Johnson, 
May you and your family have a tremendously happy and um, and just healthy Thanksgiving and uh, look forward so much to visiting again with you and learning from you next week. No problem. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care. Brett Johnson, Snell & Wilmer. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. One of the things, uh, welcome back. One of the things I want to talk with you a little bit about, I shouldn't, I, 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 it's just not a laughing matter. It's actually a pretty sad thing. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of what Milan Kundera wrote in um, his book on laughter and forgetting. The first step he wrote in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, and then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. I think about that in the context of all these stories I'm reading about tomorrow being not a day of Thanksgiving but a day of mourning. Are we going to ruin Thanksgiving too? And by the way, notice how we'd be ruining it. We'd be ruining it for political purposes, for political purposes. Um, it's a it's – a, um, it, it, it's a totally unnecessary effort. But again, it comes down to what Larry Elder said, which is we have a race and ethnic industry, crisis industry in this country, where the demand side is far outweighed by the supply side. More people are actively invested and engaged in creating the problem so that they can solve it, then there are people who actually see, witness, suffer from, or have to deal with the problem without the professionals, the distorters, the history changers, the iconoclasts. Robertson Davies, the novelist, said, Beware the dampers and the cynics. Yes, that's right. Beware the dampers, and the cynics. In this country, we have reason to give thanks. All of us do. And we'll talk more about that. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.